Hello and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is my co-host Morgan Davies. Hello. So this week we watched Promare, directed by Hiroyuki Imayashi from the Japanese anime studio Trigger. Set in the near future, it takes place after a world-changing event where thousands of people spontaneously burst into flames. In the aftermath, these people become known as the Burnish and are viewed as a dangerous threat due to their pyrokinetic abilities. The main characters are Gallo Themos, a heroic firefighter, and Leo Fotia, the mysterious leader of a Burnish freedom fighter team. And this is a Patreon request from Heather. So thank you very much to Heather for requesting this interesting and very popular anime film from 2019. My friend Effie, who is a huge anime fan, gave me some background info on this, which was her favourite movie. So <laughs> I will credit her for some of the info in this episode. But um, yeah, really enjoyed this. Very colourful, uh, modern anime film. Yes, uh, you watched this one before I did, and I, in your message to me about it, you were like, there are many colors and shapes. And I watched it, and I agree with your assessment. <laughs> colors and shapes, lots of them. I had a great time watching this movie. This is not a genre that I'm particularly familiar with, so I felt like there were certain things that kind of went over my head in terms of like the cultural language of the movie, which isn't a bad thing at all, obviously. It was just like certain things I was like, oh, I'm not quite getting all of this. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was visually really striking, which we'll obviously talk about. And then there are like 17 plot twists <laughs> in this film, which I did not see coming, uh, which was really interesting. I mean, the first like 15 minutes of the movie are just like an extremely high octane action sequence where it's not actually clear who the main character is until towards the end of the action sequence. And I was like, is this what the movie's going to be like? And the answer was no. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so I... I mean, we say this all the time, but like we get such a wide variety of requests from our Patreon subscribers, and this was a classic example of something that I would never have watched if I had not specifically been told to. Like, I'd never heard of this movie, and I wound up finding it really interesting and entertaining, so that was very cool. But why don't you sort of start us off with some background, because you have, again, your inside scoop, as you said, but you also, I think, just generally know more about this kind of movie than yeah, I do. Yeah, so um, I'd heard of Studio Trigger, which is a pretty big name in anime. Um, the director of this film is one of the founders and he's kind of known for this TV show called Gurren Lagan, which I've not watched, but is a kind of mecha anime show, very popular. And the two shows that kind of most anime fans have heard of from Studio Trigger are Kill a Kill, which is for adults, and Little Witch Academia, which is an all-ages show. And they're known for the, a lot of kind of really fast-paced, stylish like action scenes. And this movie definitely fit the bell. It is extremely visual. They've got this kind of combo of 2D and 3D animation, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the inside scoop I got from my anime pal Effie is that there is a mini plagiarism scandal kind of around the background of this movie, which is there is an anime series based on a manga series, which was existed a few years before Promare, which has a very similar premise. It's called Fire Force. And it's about kind of a world where people spontaneously burst into flames and there's other, there's like firefighters who try to, you know, quell the flames and arrest them. And uh, the creator has sort of semi-seriously accused Promare of stealing his idea, which seems like a 
fairly legitimate accusation because there's such such similar premises but apparently the politics of the two stories could not be more opposed because fire force is like we should definitely just arrest all of these evil villains whereas promare is kind of an oppression narrative about how people are misunderstood because they have like a particular gene that gives them the uh you know it's an x-men style oppression narrative which is pretty well executed in this film. It's an interesting story. It's not like enormously fresh, but also does not need to be. And apparently like the Fire Force guy liked to talk a lot about his ideas uh, to other people uh, while he was working on them before they were published. And who knows what the truth of this is? I am not an expert on the legalities of that issue, but Promare is a very good movie and does sound like it is significantly different. Additionally, it has completely different main characters. So, you know. Yes. I mean, if you're telling people what you're working on before it comes out, then you're slightly opening yourself up to that problem. I mean, the X-Men comparison is obviously the main one that I was thinking of watching this movie as a West reviewer who has seen a lot of X-Men movies. It seems like a deliberate kind of reference point. And I think what's kind of interesting, one of the interesting things about this movie is that it's simultaneously a really effective use of that kind of trope, while also being the kind of story where if you actually think about it, it doesn't quite make sense, which is the same thing with X-Men, right? Like, in X-Men, if you actually had people who could, like, control people with their brains or, like, control all metal and, like, destroy cities, that would be a serious societal problem, right? And in this, the sort of freedom-fighting-type team, they, like, burn down cities, and the leader of them, who is a great character, is like, but we like make sure there's an escape route for everyone, so it's fine. And I was like, I feel like ethically that doesn't make sense. <laughs> we will go into spoilers towards the end, but like there is an explanation for like why a bunch of people suddenly get firepowers. But kind of the way it's introduced is if you're like really stressed, you explode. Um <laughs> and like there's a kind of 30 year time jump because the introductory sequence is kind of showing all these people spontaneously bursting into flames and causing colossal damage. And then 30 years later, the world has adapted and there's like fire hydrants everywhere. And it's a very heavily policed state. And everyone's aware of who the Burnish are. And basically, if you're spotted to be a Burnish, then you will be arrested and taken off to like a secret prison somewhere. And so you have this situation where the main characters are not cops. They are firefighters. And there's like a separate government group who are more explicitly cops. But the firefighters' job is to be, you know, impressive superheroes who deal with the fires when there's been like a burnish alert. And then this other group are kind of labelled as terrorists. And they have a very cool introduction where they're all wearing these like amazing supervillain outfits where they can sort of build stuff out of flames. Like the show up looking like big old like insectoid black robots with pointy feet. They look great. And they fight against like the firefighter guys who all have kind of mech suits and also look really amazing. And then kind of the twist about one third of the way through is you kind of realise that these villains are actually relatable and they are fleeing from being, you know, kidnapped and oppressed by the government. And the protagonist guy, Galothemos, is just kind of a himbo and has never really considered any element of this arrangement at all until he finds out that actually, you know, the Burnish are humans and aren't hurting anyone. And he has his eyes opened when his local pizza restaurant chef is arrested by, you know, the evil cops and taken off to a prison somewhere. And it's like, oh no, maybe this was bad all along. <laughs> he is stupendously dumb. <laughs> 
I like that his costume is literally no shirt and one sleeve. (laughs) I mean, both the main characters are incredibly fun, but I found him just so delightful because he's so stupid that literally other characters in the movie are saying to each other, like, what is this guy's deal? Like, he's just an idiot, right? And they're like, yeah, he's just really He dumb. likes to look people. He <laughs> likes to look cool, save people, and be a cool hero. <laughs> and when he's doing his, like, fighting and stuff, he literally has to, like, give little speeches and wear a cool outfit, or else he can't work himself up <laughs> to, like, fight correctly. And everyone else is like, what is happening? Like, why can't... And he's like, uh, no, I just, I have to give myself names. And I mean, they're literally like asides with the other characters where they're just like, I don't understand. (laughs) But he's obviously not like, like it's balanced really well with the movie consistently throughout. Like he stays that dumb the whole time up through like the big final battle, right? Like he's still doing this shit, but you still get a sense of him like learning a little bit of something so that he has some moral growth. And obviously he's never like a malicious figure. He's just a complete dummy the whole time. And uh, that was very entertaining. And then the other central character, Leo, Leo Fotia, is just like a bitch. (laughs) He's so fun. (laughs) I misunderstood a key element of this film because towards the beginning when they have their big introductory fight and he gets like unveiled, the hero is like, oh, you're just a kid. And I like missed the line where he says like, oh, like, you know, so are you or whatever. So like, because it's like really stylized anime character design, Leo does actually look like he's like 14 or 15 or something. I did not realise they were meant to be the same age. So I completely missed out on a lot of the homoerotic (laughs) elements of that relationship. And at the end when they like, you know, there's like, there's like a CPR scene, which is kind of implicitly a kiss. And my friend was like, oh, what do you think of the relationship? And I was like, well, he's very young. (laughs) They're both like 22 or something. Well, one of the things I thought was interesting about well, they're obviously anime character design. Yeah, is like it's not massively stylized, to, of course. You know, human bodies, but they both have very androgynous designs in different ways. So Gallo has these like huge hips. Well, they're firefighter pants. They are low slung firefighter yes. pants, but it gives him yep. it gives him like an interesting silhouette. And then Leofotia is clearly deliberately designed to be like incredibly androgynous in every way like if you just looked at the design of this character without the context of the story you would not really know what gender he was supposed to be and the story also doesn't really i mean you like there are enough clues that he's male but like it's not really discussed that much which all felt very intentional to me and which i appreciated a lot the other guy is clearly, like, a dumb man. Like, that's obviously, like, clearly part of his character. And then this other character, gender, did not seem to be an important part of his identity at all, which I thought was cool. And also reflective of, like, the different subcultures within this world that they built, right? Yeah. They're off and they're doing their own, like, separatist thing. Yeah. As with X-Men, Burnish there people, is a very so. clear subtext to the role of the Burnish here. Yeah, like, it's it's very obvious, but there's also, like, a reveal at some point later that another character has been sort of hiding this, and it's repression sort of symbolism, which is very effective, even if it's been done before. There's a reason these tropes exist, so. 
Um, so in terms of the animation style, which is like very striking, um, what they did is it's kind of a combination of 2D and 3D like computer generated animation. So it's kind of a lot like what you've seen in Spider-Verse. And there's a lot of shots where like instead of emulating the style of like a traditional film film uh, with like lots of shots kind of edited together, they have very long sequences where it's kind of like the camera is moving through this 3D landscape and it's like extremely chaotic and very fun. And the thing that it actually reminded me of most aside from Spider-Verse was VR animation because I've watched and like played quite a lot of VR games and it felt quite a lot like that. And I think maybe there's the way they use like the 3D models and animation might be quite similar, but I'm not exactly sure how that works because I'm not an expert. But it worked really well and it's kind of, it looks, it's not trying to look like hand-drawn animation because they have loads of kind of flat blocks of colour everywhere. And one of the things that you do, you notice almost immediately is they have this extremely obvious and clear kind of symbolism to do with the different shapes in the movies. There's like this recurring symbolism of squares, triangles and circles. So the introductory sequence associates the burnish with a triangle symbol really early on. So you kind of immediately have that association in your mind and then once it goes to like the 30 year time jump and you're in the present day everything is squares and you're in this city where it's just like filled with rectangles and squares and looks like an architectural diagram and it's kind of this metaphor for stability and conservatism and like the city grid and some of the character designs have a lot of squares but crucially Gallo the himbo hero is not square he's got loads of kind of curves and fun shapes on him and then when the like the burnish freedom fighters show up they've got these really cool angular outfits on that are full of triangles and it's kind of like structurally like the triangle is more powerful because I was like while watching this I was like it's so obvious I need to think about what all the, all the triangles mean and like I feel like also <laughs> one thing that people are going to pick up on a lot is like the idea of the pink triangle as a queer symbol and like I don't know how prevalent that is in Japan and whether it's just like a coincidence or an intentional thing but it definitely kind of plays into that for sure for like western audiences who are more familiar with that but um yeah there's a lot of triangles and it kind of goes even in terms of like the lens flares there's like loads of square lens flares flares when you're in the city and then towards the end of the film they introduce like circle symbolism so there's this kind of scientist who gives like a big exposition scene towards the end and his lab is full of circles and it suddenly makes you realize you've not really seen any kind of softer circular designs anywhere and when they reach the happy ending and everything's sort of unified together, suddenly the lens flares have like turned to circles like they are in the real in the real world. And it's like, oh, love a little bit of uh, visual symbolism there. Thank you. <laughs> well, it's also the color palette of the movie is very much like a 1980s Fantasia. There's a lot of neon. Yeah, which is really fun. It is just like very, very bold sort of like blues and teals and pinks. And right at the very end, there's like, you know, two minutes where the colors are more sort of like naturalistic. And I was so startled because obviously I was registering the whole time that the color palette was what it was, but you just get so used to it as like, well, that's what this movie looks like. And then when they changed it, I was like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is so different. And, you know, we've talked so much about how American films are visually boring. And obviously, you know, animation is different from other kinds of movies anyway. And American animated films are not, like, gray. But <laughs> it just really was pleasant to watch because it's so not attempting to not be anything but, like, really bold and in your face. 
And I think that ties into with the dynamism of the camera movements. I mean, obviously it's not a real camera, but you know what I mean? Some of which I found kind of like too much. And I think that's part of where the like lack of cultural literacy in anime came in. Like, especially that first long battle sequence i was just like this is I like don't. dazzling well they have all these parts where like the um the name of the characters comes up on screen in like giant letters behind the character and i was like i cannot read a single one of these <laughs> yeah i mean those sort of splash pages were obviously very fun and i was familiar with that as like a concept of a thing that happens in anime um i should also say i watched the dub because that was the only thing that was available on HBO Max, which is how I watched this movie. They had English and Spanish as options, but not the original Japanese <laughs> audio track. I don't know why, but the dub was very good. I, I didn't feel like my experience was diminished, but I was slightly yeah, annoyed. It's also not a particularly dialogue-heavy movie, so... <laughs> no, but yeah, that first sort of like 10 or 15 minutes when it's just this like endless, you know, firefighting action sequence, I was kind of like, oh no, <laughs> It's the whole movie's like this, like this is gonna be kind of painful. But then it really shifts course. And I think there's a pretty good balance between kind of character stuff and action type sequences. And there's a lot of variety between the kinds of action sequences that there are in the movie. I mean, I still kind of felt like the final battle was too long, which is a common problem in American blockbusters as well. But like by and large animation is far bigger in Japan than it is in the West. But I mean, this is like a really mainstream movie. Like this is a big film that lots of people saw. And although it kind of gets a bit more kind of traditional blockbustery towards like the final third, it's so much more interesting, like even conceptually, like they're executing this fairly straightforward X-Men style story in a more interesting way than we're kind of used to seeing from like a blockbuster in America and it is just visually like so much more exciting and they're having so much more fun with like every element of the character design and like all of the vehicles like they're having so much fun designing like a million little vehicles. (laughs) Yeah I mean this is obviously the benefit of being able to animate a movie for adults as opposed to just being like all the cars are black Fords. Which is what most action in America do. But you can just make whatever the fuck you want up and just, you know, draw it. Obviously, it takes a huge amount of time and effort. But the kind of imagination that can happen without the physical resources that are required for, like, a huge fantasy or sci-fi movie, which costs so much money if you're actually building all the stuff, it's just totally different. And... This movie is so clearly influenced by big science fiction and sort of futurist movies, I think, from the East and the West. And it's sort of melding all of this stuff together. And it's like very straightforward kind of mecha anime elements in there, for sure. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I mean, totally. But part of what was interesting to me about it was how, like, again, there were clearly sort of some references that I could sort of tell were references to things that I wasn't totally getting. I mean, obviously the Mecca stuff, I am familiar with that as a concept. But there were also a lot of things that seemed like they were really explicitly referencing like American cultural products or just American politics in a way that seemed pretty intentional to me. Down to the like, occasionally when they kind of leave the city and go into the 
country and there's like a big landscape shot, they all looked so much like the American West in a way that felt intentional to me. And there was one shot they kept showing by the big like lake that they keep going back to that isn't exactly Yosemite Valley, but looks almost exactly like Yosemite Valley, and I think has to have been on purpose. And the landscape right at the end of the movie, too, absolutely is just like the American desert out in like California somewhere. And the movie felt to me like it was sort of saying something about, again, like American cinema, but also American immigration policy, for instance, like that was going on in the film in a way that felt really interesting. I always think when you have people from another country who are kind of making art that comments on a different country's politics, that interesting things yeah. happen, right? Because there's definitely like there's, a different there's definitely like a lot of kind of commentary on Western and like American anime fans thinking that anime is more American than it is and like all the kind of continual problem of people kind of interpreting anime characters as being white because they've got blonde hair. It's like they're not. They're like all Japanese. But with this, like one of the key research influences for the movie is they like went and did their firefighter research before they started writing the film in like it was some American firefighting unit that has like a credit. It's like maybe in California or something. And it's like, so you were like very specifically doing the idea of like a heroic team of American firefighters was like their premise. And then they completely stylized that into this kind of team of men and women, one of whom is an anime girl with pigtails, who apparently is like very similar to like the studio trigger mascot or something. But it's like, it almost kind of felt in that regard a bit like, um, like a TV pilot because they introduced this team of characters who were like basically irrelevant to the plot. They are kind of the background figures in Gallo's life. And they certainly didn't like make the film worse or feel extraneous, but it was kind of like, oh, well, we're going to have this team of like fun, interestingly designed characters who have like one character trait each. And it's definitely not like an actual super team because they're basically not relevant to his personal journey. Yeah, the credits when they're like showing each of them individually, like with their names across the screen, I was like, I don't have any feelings (laughs) about any of these people. Like they were fine, but you know, whatever. But that also, again, seems like a... I mean, American movies do this too, right? With the like individual character posters that get made for like every random ass person in like a blockbuster film. And you're like, I don't know who that is. <laughs> well, possibly there'll be action figures. I mean, they had this, there's like a girl in the team who like at the beginning, you think she's kind of being set up as his love interest. And then they just completely abandon that. And she has her own subplot with her sister who's working with like the mayor of the city who turns out to be the villain quite early on. Cause he's the one who like is controlling the like oppressive government forces that are trying to kidnap the burnish and use them for dastardly means. I mean, we should talk about the actual yeah. plot, I feel, because there's again, this movie kind of becomes like three different things that I was not anticipating. Cause it very quickly you're like, oh, it's an X-Men thing. Which I mean it remains an X-Men thing the whole time on some level, but it feels like that's gonna kind of be it. And as you say, there's this mayor character who, <laughs> if I have one kind of critique of the like character dynamics of this movie, it would be that this guy is absolutely so obviously evil the entire time. <laughs> and every time anyone sees him do an evil thing, they're like gasping in shock and are like, oh my god. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's very funny. And Gallo, the sort of uh, himbo guy like idolizes this man because he saved him from a fire when he was very young and that's why he wanted to become a firefighter etc etc and predictably he turns out to be evil and 
what he winds up telling Gallo, or showing him, rather, is that the, like, magma in the Earth's core is, like, out of control, and it's gonna destroy the entirety of planet Earth. So then, in addition to the oppression allegory, you've got a global warming allegory. And in order to fuel the, like, special ship that he's built that's gonna take 10,000 people... And like, yeah, go to another like he's planet. an Elon Musk asshole who's like, we're not going to solve things here. We're just going to take 10,000 of my favorite people and leave. <laughs> yeah, they're like, they've invented some fancy device that like pulls energy out of the burnish and kills them in the process. And they need to do this like on a mass scale in order to like open a portal to another dimension and send the ship out of there. And I was like, well, this is not what I was expecting <laughs> this movie to be at all. I thought this was about firefighters. Uh, okay. So Gallo, of course, is like, no, this is bad because I've decided that I believe in ethics. And then he gets locked up. And meanwhile, they like capture all the burnish and are going to take all their energy, except for the main guy, Leofotia, who like loses it and turns into like a huge dragon. And is like going down the street because he wants to exact revenge. I thought that scene was one of the most it truly fun. kicked ass. Great scene. I love Leo. He's definitely my fave. He's got a nice little goth outfit. He turns into a dragon. He's he's great. <laughs> well, what I thought was so fun about that scene was that the mecha type fighting is not as interesting to me. Like I just don't find it as entertaining. It can be done well, but I it's inherently slightly boring to me. Whereas him being like, I am so mad that I have spontaneously turned into a huge fire dragon and I'm just like going crazy down the streets of the city. That's interesting and new to me. <laughs> well, it's actually kind of interesting. Now I think about what you were saying earlier about his more androgynous design is that um, although there are like, obviously mecha anime is not like a men only genre and there's many, many examples of it there is definitely kind of comparisons made between like the idea of like mecha anime as sort of like the more like masculine uh, kind of sci-fi action and then magical girl stories. And they're both kind of about being a person that's like inside a larger, more powerful person. So it's like you have your giant mech suit, which in some cases can like destroy you physically and mentally. And in some cases is just like a cool suit. And then you have the anime girl where it's like you go through a transformation and become like this amazing, powerful person who's got like a cool outfit. And Leo Fotia is like, his introduction is more kind of magical girl because he's just got like his powers are giving him this cool outfit, which is disguising his identity. And then when it comes off, it's like, oh, it's just like this guy. And then... Gallo, who's a bit more macho, actually does just have like a robot suit. <laughs> yes. Um, and then they both wind up in a suit together at the end of the movie. I, I Ren, love that element because it's like they, from... they kind of because they have to rely on like Leo's powers to like make the suit look different ways. Like Gallo is like, I'm not happy with the design of this. And I was kind of thinking of it as like they're like the writer artist team and like a comic book creative team <laughs> because you've got the writer who's like, okay, right, give me a huge sword. And then the artist is like, sure, what kind of sword do you need? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's so good. Yeah. But yeah, I love the dragon. Also, just in terms of like the animation. That's more like exciting, I think. Yeah, to me than the various other. Yeah, and they do a lot of different. They convey his rage visually really effectively. I think like he's losing it, 
and the animation style is kind of like out of control. But anyway, he and Gallo both kind of wind up outside of the city. Like he sort of accidentally breaks Gallo out of prison and they wind up in this like underground lair that is like the cave of this dead guy who's turned himself into like a consciousness. Like a floating head. He's like a floating you know, exposition head who used to be a mad scientist. Yes. <laughs> and he's like, actually, the burnish, like the flames that they could control aren't just flames. They're actually aliens that have like synced with this planet from another dimension. And I was like, oh, it's Scientology? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> I was like, oh, it's like that Doctor Who storyline where all these ghosts come from another dimension, but they actually turn out to be the Cybermen. <laughs> I mean... It, both are both appropriate <laughs> comparisons, I feel. And, like, you can't use up the burnish to fuel the ship because then, like, the reason that the Earth's core is going nuts is not that it's just happening. It's because, like, Trauma. these beings are freaking out. Yep. So I was like, wait, we've now gone, like, 180 degrees, like, three times in this movie, which wasn't bad. I was just like, what is happening? So then they have to defeat the bad guy to stop him from destroying the Earth for everyone with his bad machine. But uh, I really admired the boldness of the writer being like, fuck it. (laughs) I'm just gonna go for it and just do all of it. And... There are definitely, like, elements within all of that and, like, the way it's executed, too, with these people's, like, life force basically being sucked out of them that are quite disturbing. Yeah. Although they all wind up being fine, which doesn't make any sense. They should all be dead. Like, (laughs) but whatever. But I think the tonal balance somehow manages to both be, like, really fun and funny and then also have this sort of like genuinely quite creepy and disturbing I mean they like disintegrate their lovable pizza chef halfway through (laughs) they're like put him in the disintegrator yeah you literally see their bodies like their fingertips are just like oh that's gone now like bye bye which uh yeah very creepy but like I feel like that could have easily just felt stupid and it was you know impressive on behalf of the creative team that it felt genuinely like, oh, this is bad. A wild screenwriting feat, in my opinion. <laughs> Especially when you think about the first 15 minutes and it's just like people punching each other. Yeah, it's pure action. You get revved up for a nice like 10 to 15 minutes and then they're like, okay, here's what the film's actually about. And then they change their mind three times. <laughs> and then yeah. they got a nice me happy ending where, you know, all the burnish become normal humans. And, uh... And then Gallo and Leo get their happy ending together after doing a wee bit of mouth to mouth resuscitation. Yeah. He literally, like, breathes a little bit of fire into him. I was like, oh, I see. <laughs> That's not for doing. you guys. <laughs> yeah. And the, the evil mayor is the one who's secretly a burnish and he's been keeping that hidden. Yeah. So the music was very fun as kind of our final technical thing. Now we've talked about uh, all the cool visual design and animation style. Uh, This film is basically just like one long music video. (laughs) The soundtrack album is just like colossal, but it is primarily composed by Hiroyuki Sawano, who is a very prolific anime composer who's done music for stuff like Kill la Kill and Mobile Suit Gundam and stuff like that. He's great 
And uh, yeah, this this film is properly just like blasting you. I was very happy to have a projector to watch this movie. Nice big projection on the wall of the giant purple robots and uh, just like very loud techno. But as Morgan was kind of remarking before we started recording, there's like a particular style of Japanese rock, which is very prevalent in anime. And to us, sounds like just kind of proto-emo 2004, like radio mall rock. So it's like there's points in the soundtrack where like when they have like an actual band singing pop rock I'm like it's not really working for me but all the parts where there was like a female vocalist or no singing I was like kicks ass love this amazing lots of amazing percussion great techno cool sound effects really working for me I have listened to various uh various tracks off this soundtrack since watching the film and enjoyed the hell out of it whereas I was like oh this reminds me of my youth because Anything that was sort of like 2004-ish, I was like, great. Love it. I remember this time. Obviously not trying to be like a pastiche of that era because, as you say, like... It's just just... a Japanese subgenre, which is often the credits music on so many anime shows I watch. Right. But um, the visuals seemed so, like, specifically trying to sort of evoke the 80s. Not in the sense that, like, the characters are wearing clothes that look like clothes people would have worn in the 80s, but just, like, the colours and the sort of, like, neon vibe. I mean, there was such a lack of anything else 80s related that I did not pick up on that at all. And I think it's just because, like, there's a certain colour palette which is very trendy now, and in this case it's more, like, divorced from that. Yeah, and obviously I'm thinking of, like, America in the 1980s, which is its own specific cultural thing. But I think I was also thinking of, like, the even though the music was sort of reminding me of like 2004 there was something about it that also seemed kind of like 80s to me <laughs> because that kind of rock just doesn't exist anymore and right? also the idea of having like an action scene where you have like a power ballad is something we should really bring right. back more because it, it's great <laughs> yeah which was very much in vogue in the 80s in america um i'm not even so much saying that like the 80s thing was like an intentional reference point for them but to me that was kind of what it felt like because american film just like doesn't feel like this anymore at all but i do think there is a little bit of like a throwback energy to the movie while also obviously it feels it has a futuristic thing but i think like anything that's futuristic always kind of feels throwbacky because we don't know what the future is really going to be like and so like all futuristic design always has this weird energy of like pulling on other stuff that already exists well also it's like if you're working on like decades and decades of mecha anime where like these animators grew up with like their own by that point second generation of like mecha anime themselves apparently there's like quite a lot of references in this movie to other stuff by studio trigger which i've not watched so yeah i just really appreciated how much of a like sensory experience it was on every level like it's not trying to be subtle in any way. And also the true power of like having main characters whose characterization is technically very thin but are just incredibly cool. They look cool, they are cool, I love them. <laughs> yes. And you can really feel the animators. Like I think it almost is too much occasionally. They're just but they're so excited about the like pyrotechnics that they can pull off. That's also kind of why it's like Although I kind of do understand why, like, the guy who thinks they stole his idea is very pissed. 
I mean, he has a TV show, so he's fine. But like, I'm also kind of like, clearly, this is like radically different from whatever that product is, both thematically and also like the visual style is so distinctive. Yeah. I mean, as I was saying, like the screenplay is so wild. And I think it's definitely a lot of what makes this movie successful. But the main distinctive thing is the visuals being so out of control in like a good way. So yeah, the plagiarism thing doesn't quite seem, you know, viable to me either. But what can you do? But yeah, this was really, really fun to watch. And uh, I would definitely recommend it to anybody. Um, I'm not someone who knows anything about anime really at all. And I found it super entertaining yeah. and I would literally so. my only my only uh, caveat would be if you are prone to visual seizures, then this would probably be like the number one film not to watch. But it's very entertaining yes. if that isn't an issue for you. Yeah, I agree. But yeah, thank you so much to Heather for requesting this. This was really fun. So next week, we are going to be discussing In the Mood for Love, which is a movie we both love. It's a perfect film. So that will be (laughs) very, very exciting. I am excited to rewatch this. I saw it once years ago at MoMA, and it was was just so awesome. But uh, I will watch it again. And just for some background for those who are unaware of In the Mood for Love, it is a 2000... Hong Kong film by the extremely acclaimed director Wong Kar Wai, who predominantly, he primarily specializes in romantic dramas. And um, it's a story about a man and a woman whose spouses are having an affair with each other. And it is a completely gorgeous and marvelous film with an iconic score. So we're going to love it. <laughs> yes. And I saw him do a talk when I saw the movie. So I will try to remember everything that he said. He is a character. We obviously highly recommend checking that out before our next episode if you have not already seen it. Or rewatch it if you are if you have. Always a good time to watch In the Mood for Love. So uh, check back next week for that. You can find our reactions to the Academy Award nominations as well as book club posts about Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which we will be covering on the main podcast in a couple weeks at our Patreon at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Gavia, where can our listeners find you and your work online? You can find me on Twitter at hello underscore Taylor, and you can find me on YouTube at Behind the Seams. And you can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at ML Davies. The podcast is on Twitter at OverinvestedPod and Tumblr at OverinvestedPodcast. Our website is OverinvestedPodcast.com. Thanks. Bye.